You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. All right. Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. I've been out of town just the last couple of days. We went out to the White Mountains. Uh, my dad and mom are in town, and I'd like to have them stand up if you would. Dad and mom, stand up. Uh, and so thank you so much. I wanted to show my honor to them. They were a huge help in us getting out here to Phoenix uh, almost 10 years ago to start the church. And the uh, Bible says, honor your father and your mother. And I wanted to take the opportunity to do that. So thank you, Dad. Thank you, Mom, for supporting us and helping start this church. Thank you. Um, well, hey, today uh, what I'm going to talk to you about is... Um, uh, trusting God, and um, I want to tell you a story uh, that, that will illustrate this as we get, move forward. Uh, we are in the Gospel of John. We've been in the Gospel of John. I mean, I'm so excited today. We're actually going to finish chapter four of the Gospel of John, and it's only taken us 21 weeks to get there, so we're making great progress. I'm just really proud about that. Um, so today, um, I want to teach you about the importance of trusting God, and I want to illustrate it with a very powerful illustration. Um, years ago, I served as a, a rafting guide, mountaineer guide, and, um, and a, white, a whitewater rafting guide in the mountains, and rock climbing, and doing all that. So I, this uh, one trip, in, uh, there was a bunch of folks from Texas that had come up, and Texas always acts super tough. I mean, I mean anybody from Texas here? Yeah, arm wrestle them later, okay? They will win. And uh, Texas is always just tough people. So anyway, a group of folks show up, uh, high school, college folks, and I'm up on the rocks, and I'm in charge of making sure that uh, the gear is set. We set the anchors, and then they're going to rappel off about 100 feet on a granite rock. Uh, and so um, one individual just stood out to me. His name, we're going to call him Johnny. And Johnny was the tough boy. And everybody looked at Johnny like he was probably the all-star football player, uh, everybody thought he was the man. I mean, he looked really big, really strong, uh, pumped up on creatine, I'm sure. This guy was a, a pretty excellent athlete, and he had a really uh, cocky little attitude. And I figured, you know what, before we hit the trail, I'm going to chip this thing off because he's going to need it to be humbled in order to really make the group work well. So I said, hey, um, i tell you what. I said, I need to volunteer to go first. Uh, anybody would like to go first? And I knew Johnny would take. So Johnny says, I'll go first. I said, good, Johnny. I was hoping you'd do that. Come on up with me. We hiked to the top of the cliff. And looking down is probably his girlfriend and all his football buddies. And I said, Johnny, you got this? He said, I totally got this. I said, great. Well, let's gear in. We clipped in, put the carabiner in, put the figure eight in. And so uh, he's ready to go off. And then he leans off and he goes, are, are you going to come down with me? I said, I'm not coming with you, Johnny. And he said, well, how am I supposed to do this if you don't come with me? I've never done this before. I said, Johnny, everybody's looking. You're going to have to go down the edge here. And he said, uh, well, how do I know this uh, rope's going to hold me? How do I know this carabine is going to work? How do I know that you set the anchors correctly? I said, Johnny, I'm a guide. Do it. Go down the mountain. And everybody's waiting, and they start bringing up other students to line up to go down this cliff. I said, Johnny, everybody's got cameras. They want to take pictures of you. You need to go down. And he looks at me and goes, I don't want to go down anymore. To just tell him that it didn't work out. He goes, I'll tell you what, I'll buy you a steak dinner tonight. I'll tell you what, I'll give you an extra tip. I'll do whatever it takes. Get me off of this thing. I said, Johnny, you're going down, bud. 
And how many of you guys ever seen the movie, uh, The Christmas Story, uh, with little Ralphie and Santa Claus? you remember what I'm talking about? There's this one scene where little Ralphie, he's trying to remember what he wanted for Christmas, and uh, he couldn't figure it out. And Santa Claus is right there beside him, and Santa Claus gets frustrated and says, you know, basically you run out of time. It's time to go, kid. And so Ralphie's going down the slide, and sure enough, he flips around and grabs the slide and goes, I remember what I want. And he says, I want a Red Ryder BB gun. And Santa Claus says, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. Pow. Little Ralphie goes down the slide. So I figured, you know what? Little Johnny's going to need a little toe tap. So I said, Johnny, you know what, bud? We've been here long enough. It's time for you to go down. Boop. And Johnny goes, whoa. <laughs> Shoots down the, the cliff. And everybody's cheering. I mean, this guy, I, he was deeply humbled. Here's what I want to teach you today is that what we're going to see when we look at the life of Jesus Christ, he's going to push an individual in the sense over the edge of his comfort zone, and he's going to have to put absolute trust in what Jesus has to say. And in life, there are so many times where you are literally being thrust off the edge of your comfort zone, and you have to have absolute faith that it's going to work out in some way, some shape, or form. In that illustration, you realize Johnny had to put his faith and trust in the harness, that the harness would hold him, that I actually had the wisdom and the insight and knowing how to loop it up to make sure it would hold him, that the anchors were set, that the rope is going to hold him, that the carabiners weren't going to break, and he had to get to that point, and he needed a little shove. Today, what we're going to see is Jesus, in a sense, thrust a man back into the harness of trust And he's going to have to learn how to trust Jesus Christ. Picking up in chapter 4, verse 43, the apostle John uh, writes and records the details and the life uh, uh, events of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 43, after the two days that he had departed from Galilee, um, and I'll pause right there, um, Jesus had just got done spending, remember, a couple of days with the Samaritans. He had... um, ministered to the woman at the well. He had revealed his identity, that he was the Messiah. The woman goes out, shares her faith with other people. I met a man that told me all that I ever did. She unveiled all of her story, all for God's glory. Samaritans, many people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, in having this conversation with the woman at the well, he crossed racial boundaries, gender boundaries, religious boundaries, and he reveals his identity as the Messiah to this woman that had been such a checkered past, and it is powerful. Jesus spends two days in a personal private conference with all these Samaritans, and they're asking him questions. And everywhere Jesus went, he was overly crowded, like the movie stars that you see on TV. They can't go anywhere without being bombarded by people. Jesus would walk into a house, and it would fill up so much that there wouldn't be any room. Jesus drew thousands and thousands of people at this point in time. John the Baptist was a powerful preacher, and he drew thousands of people. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and all those crowds start to follow Jesus. Jesus is famous, 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 famous. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, Jesus has got a mission. And so we pick up on it. Two days he'd been in Samaria. Now he's going to Galilee. Verse 44, find interesting the apostle John makes this comment. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. I think what's important to notice in that little phrase right there, kind of a parenthesis, 
is basically that Jesus was rejected by and large by his own people. The Jewish community rejected Jesus Christ. He confronted them deeply uh, in the temple, if you recall, when he walked into the temple, saw the money changers, uh, saw the corruptions going on, flips the table, braids the whip, whoops, whoops, drives everybody out of there. The Jewish people are frustrated. Remember Nicodemus, too. Nicodemus was this grand theologian, this Jewish pro professor of religion, if you will, and he asked lots of questions, and he doesn't really receive Jesus Christ at the point in time of that conversation, but then Jesus moves on, and he has a conversation with a Samaritan. And the Samaritan woman, not a Jewish woman, a person who's got a very uh, 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 struggling past, had five different husbands, and the man that she was living with was not even her husband, and the Samaritans were looked down as like half-breeds, people that nobody wanted to associate with, they received Jesus Christ. And Jesus um, is refining incredible receptivity among the non-Jewish people. Early Christianity was incredibly multi-ethnic, and the Jewish community, by and large, rejected Jesus Christ. Verse 45, it says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. A lot of Galileans would travel down uh, as part of their pilgrimage uh, down towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem was and still is the holy city. People made pilgrimage there, and they had heard and seen all about Jesus. Jesus is famous. In verse 46, we pick into the story of the individual we're going to call the official son. Jesus heals an official son, verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. You remember that? Again, at Capernaum, Capernaum's a great distance away from Cana. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. This official, most likely, is uh, somebody uh, that works within the uh, house or the kind of department, if you will, uh, for King, Her King Herod Antipas. And he is a, a man that is a very noble man, uh, has a, a power and prestige, and his boy is ill. How many of you have ever had a child that's been literally hospitalized or greatly ill? Those of you parents, would you raise your hand? It's a very scary time. Um, this man is in a desperate situation. Uh, we note in verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee... He went to him, asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of, help me out, death. So this boy is basically on his deathbed. And there's no hope, no help. Uh, modern day medicine, pretty bleak. But Jesus, there is one who has a rumor and a reputation. He can heal people. He could even change water to wine. And this uh, person of power and prestige is brought humbled and low, and he's incredibly desperate. His boy is on his deathbed. He makes a great trip, takes off time off of work. He's going to do whatever it takes to save his boy. So it's a pretty bleak situation. He goes, he finds Jesus, and he makes the request to come with him. 
Look what Jesus says. Let's see how he responds. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He doesn't go with a man. He just gives that kind of uh, reproval. Uh, the interesting um, word here in the Greek is the word you. It is not a singular idea here. It's a plural. Jesus was talking to a crowd, and what he was saying was, you all, you all need signs and wonders to believe. How many of you have ever been there before in life where you just need to see to believe things? Would you raise your hand? It, well, I want to see something, God, so I believe in you. Um, Jesus says that, I think, for two reasons. One, the Galileans and the Gentiles, um, they like to see Jesus, and not the magic show, but although Jesus was a sensation, they knew Jesus as a miracle worker. But secondly, the Jews that were in the crowd, they actually needed to see a miracle in order for them to believe that the uh, person was sent by God to authenticate the message. So in other words, in Old Testament theology, for the Jew, a prophet always authenticated his power through the miracles. So you don't find Old Testament prophets without doing some ability for a powerful, miraculous work. And so Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, um, you will not believe. The official responds, now he speaks up. Verse 49, the official said to him, sir, it's not Lord, it's not Messiah, just sir. Sir, come down before my child dies. He's making a request. He's just saying, I believe that you're powerful. I believe that you could do something incredible and I'm incredibly desperate. I need you to come with me and I will show you my son and you could heal him. He's gonna die. Um, the first thing I wanna show you, I think there's three levels of trust that we can learn from, from the official, the father that's in desperation. Number one is that trust in the works of Jesus Christ. Um, this is the first level of trust um, for this official. He had already heard about the miraculous things that Jesus had done in, in Cana, in Galilee. He'd already heard about some of his miraculous power. And it's very common, right, for so many of us um, maybe to trust and see Jesus as this powerful miracle worker that touched the earth and history is formed around him perhaps because of his miraculous power. And so many people, if you ask them who Jesus is today, they will tell you, well, I think he was probably a, a great miracle worker, but I don't know if he was God. Uh, this official um, is not at the point of believing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, but he believes enough to trust in the works of Jesus. But he's, Jesus is going to take him to a whole new level of trust, pushing him back into the harness of faith and trust. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. What's alarming about this, perhaps for the official, is that Jesus isn't coming with them. 
Jesus just said, you need to go and trust that it's going to work out. If I was him, I would say, no, 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 Jesus, I don't think you understand. You're supposed to come with me. You need to lay hands on my boy. You need to do something. I need to see you do it. I want my son to be well. But Jesus says, no, no, I'm staying here. You need to go. And you need to realize that your son will live. And look at the response of the man. It says, the man believed, help me out, the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The second level of trust is trusting uh, in the words of Jesus. And so many people today, they trust in the words of Jesus. They want Jesus' teaching. I meet plenty of deists and humanists who like the idea of Jesus' teaching um, and say, Jesus' teaching is good. I claim the promises of God. I want the words of Jesus in my life. I live the, the red letters. And this man believed in the word. But he didn't yet believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. So Jesus is taking him on a journey to a deeper level of trust. Verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him. This is the official. As he goes back to uh, find his boy, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Imagine that. Hey, sir, uh, your son, he's getting well. Verse 52, so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever had left him. Verse 53, the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. At the exact moment that Jesus says your son will live is the exact moment that boy began to get better. In that Jesus has power over distance. There's nothing that limits Jesus. He's proving his divinity through the miraculous works so that more and more people might believe. It's an incredible story. And then it goes on and it says, now here's this deeper level of trust. And he himself believed. So the official now believes and John the apostle records this because the whole theme of the gospel of John is that so that people may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So he believes, and it says, in all his household, so that means all his kids, everybody that's involved, perhaps the employees, the workers that are in the house, verse 54, and this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The first sign that the uh, apostle John records was uh, the miraculous turning water into wine. The second one is this one. And he did it and he recorded it to help people understand. And through the Gospel of John, there are seven signs. Uh, these two are clearly laid out for us to see. Um, what's happened with the official is this, is now he has put his trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm asking you the question, um, maybe you've looked at Jesus Christ as a great teacher a great moral leader in our world. Maybe you look at Jesus and he is to you this great miracle worker and you love the power of God and see the power of God. Or then you see and you think, oh, well, maybe I, I love the promises of God and you see Jesus as a great teacher. But what Jesus wants you to see him as more than anything, that he is the Lord, that he is the Messiah, that he's the one you can put your trust in. 
And in a time in today's world where so much is going on and there's so much question, uncertainty, fear, and lack of control in some realms, we need trust. If you're uncertain about your, your destiny and your future, I challenge you to put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. Sometimes we're thrust into a situation where we have to trust God. In this situation, this whole storyline started with a crisis of faith. The individual was not a believer in Jesus Christ, and it took a crisis for him to come to faith in Jesus. I think of stories where individuals were on their deathbed, and at the very end of their life, they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Is it going to take a crisis for you to really trust God in your life? There are three different uh, lessons, I think, for us to learn how to trust God and go off the grid. Number one, it's this, is trusting often comes with trials. I think of a story of an individual, he was an extreme uh, climber, and oftentimes he would climb without a rope. It's called soloing up a big mountain face, the big mountains of Yosemite, um, El Cap, and all these other mountains. And he had a, a, a necklace around his neck, and on that necklace there was a, a cross, uh, there was a Jewish star, and then there was a little crescent moon for the Muslim Islamic faith, and then a lucky rabbit's foot. And somebody asked him, sir, why do you have all those trinkets on your neck? And he said, hey, man, when you're about to die, you know, I'll take any help I can get. Here's the reality is you have to realize um, that we need to place our faith in Jesus Christ. There's a lot of different options. But Jesus Christ is the one that we ought to place our faith in. You can stack him against Buddha, Muhammad, and any other world leader or world religious leader that you would think perhaps a religion uh, has formed around, and Jesus is the one you can place your trust in uh, intellectually and emotionally and spiritually. Um, what we see is first is trusting often comes with trials. Um, what I love about this story of the official son as this is that there's really a double miracle that takes place. The first miracle was that the boy was healed. The second miracle that we see in the story is that this man's heart moved from unbelief to belief. So the Lord heals a physical body, and then the Lord heals and restores a, a spiritual deficit and, and restores a heart to belief. And so there is this reality that a trial or a crisis uh, will challenge us to place our trust. I think back in my own life, um, when we first had kids, and by the way, uh, when I found out uh, that we were having twins, I freaked out. I literally had like a man fit. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, but it doesn't look good. I, was, I felt totally unprepared for fatherhood. I was overwhelmed by the grace of God that Jesus would choose me to be in ministry, that Jesus would give me a wonderful wife, and then um, be a father and we weren't planning on it quite like this. We show up to the um, doctor's office and we do uh, get ready. And the doctor has got that little thing on my wife's belly. And uh, they say, hey, uh, we'll be the first to tell you that you're going to have a set of twins. That was like shock. I don't know what happened. I almost fell apart because I'm thinking two, this is too much. And I can't handle this. And then my wife, I look over and she is crying Niagara Falls. 
And then I look at the doctor and I said, excuse me, but could we have a second opinion about this? And the doctor looks at me very sternly and says, I am the second opinion, thank you very much. I said, okay, well, this is a lot for us to take in right now. So we're having two. And she said, yes. I said, okay. And uh, then we went on and we left that appointment. My wife and I are floored. We are completely overwhelmed. Um, We'd been married just a couple of years. And my wife got so big, and she gave me permission to say this. She was like a, she's a little, she's a little petite, beautiful frame. And she got so big, she like said, Ryan, I feel like a whale walking around. She had about uh, 12 to 14 pounds of baby. And when she came into the room, the belly came first. And uh, when we gave birth, or when she gave birth, I actually almost passed out when that happened. Um. But when she gave birth, um, Riley, my little girl, she had to stay in the hospital for several days. She had a really bad case of jaundice. And uh, it was really hard on her liver, and they put her in an incubator. And I'll never forget sitting in the room, and I'm looking at my little girl, and I'm praying, and I'm like, Lord, I cannot do anything to help her. And the only thing I could do was stick my hand inside the incubator, and her little hand would wrap around my pointer finger. That's how small her hand was. And she would just hold my finger. And in that moment, I'm like, I trust you, Lord. i got to place my trust in you that you'll take care of my daughter right now. I want her to be well. When it comes to the Christian faith, oftentimes it's through a trial that you'll find the sensitivity where you're trusting God. Your heart that was hardened or numb or distant or disconnected, all of a sudden, there's kind of this opportunity where you say, I need you, Jesus. I can't do this. Maybe you've experienced loss of a loved one. Maybe you've gone through a great uh, hardship in your relationships with somebody that you love, and there's nothing you can do to fix it. This is why oftentimes in a trial that you learn to trust. This is the first principle in that. Secondly, I would say just realize that trust isn't easy. Trusting God is never easy. We believe in a God that we cannot see. I have not seen Jesus Christ physically, neither have you. Perhaps you you haven't heard his voice audibly. But we read the stories of scripture, we see the Bible, we place our faith in Jesus We know him through the word. We know him through the historical place of knowing the events. There is no one like Jesus. He is the Lord. But it's still hard to trust, isn't it, sometimes? This is the Christian faith. The Christian faith is a journey. And I think if you tried to approach all religion and what is uh, is their life after death and all of this, I think if you intellectually approached every religion, you would come out and say Christianity by far has the most historical data and facts I'll put my trust in. But at the end of the day, I'm just telling you, trust isn't easy. It's hard. Um, and for those of you that have been a Christian um, a while, you realize that trusting God and doing life his way is oftentimes actually harder So anybody who tells you that when you believe and you become a Christian, then all of a sudden everything's going to be easy, that's not true. What is true is that the Christian life is the best life, but it's not the easiest life. When I first became a Christian at 18, I knew that I had to come back and confront all my old relationships that were 
wrong. I had to ask for a lot of apologies and say I'm sorry. And then I made a lot of new friends. And being a single Christian and having to redo all my relationships and remap how I thought and what I did was incredibly difficult. If you're a single, you're being challenged to follow Jesus abstain from sexual immorality, live a life that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord, and that can be incredibly hard. If you're married, you're challenged to reconcile and work things out, even though it's not easy. You're supposed to keep your commitments to one another and model the gospel with unconditional love and unconditional respect and preserve the family and model the gospel message to the world around you and to the kids that you have, perhaps. And that's not easy. Trusting God is never easy. It's not easy in your relationships. It's not easy in your finances. It's not easy with your business. Some of you are running businesses and you're trusting God. Promptings, perhaps, of the Holy Spirit, reading in God's Word and using wisdom to do what you need to do. Trusting God is never easy. And and again, perhaps it's that moment where you feel that the Lord, in a sense, is challenging you to place all your faith, lean over the edge, and trust Him. And like I said, in today's time, man, we've, our faith can be, can be rattled a bit. We think about the great country that we have, but then we see the pressures all around the world, and we think, what's next? So I'll tell you, trusting is never easy. It never was supposed to be. And by the way, God is good, but He's not always safe. Uh, recently, I just finished a, a, a book, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, and there's this scene in there where they're inquiring about Aslan the lion. And somebody asks, is Aslan safe? And the response is, no, Aslan is not safe, but he is good. God is not safe. God is good. When you trust your life to Jesus Christ, you are on an adventure that will take you up mountains that perhaps you never thought you'd climb. And then you gain a perspective in life that you never thought you could see. But then there will be down a calling down the mountain into a journey into the valley of the shadow of death. And you're wondering, are you ever going to get out of there? God is always good. His character never changes. But the life that he calls you to is off the grid. It's not an easy highway. But it is a good life. It's a great life. And so no matter what trial that you go through, here's your response. I'll trust you. I'll trust you in this trial. That's all you can do. Like the little hand going into the incubator, all you can do is go, okay, I'm trying. I can't do anything, but I'm here. And this is what we come to in the Christian faith. Lastly, I would say is trusting brings transformation. And transformation is never easy. When you change, uh, it's hard. Um, But when you trust God, there can be a transformation um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I, we adopted a little girl. Her name is Maya. She's now 10 years old. She's precious to us. Um, we adopted her uh, at uh, 14 months old. She was just a, a, almost a, a little over a year. And uh, I don't know if you know anything about fostering and adoption, but basically when you foster or adopt, um, those kids don't come to you like with a picture-perfect family. I mean, that seems like a no-brainer. Um, But you have to understand when a child gets into the system, um, what that means is is that there were traumatic events. I mean, literally like 
police raids into the house, perhaps, to take the children away from an abusive, dangerous, life-threatening situation where the biological mother and father are no longer fit to be the guardians. And so these are the conditions these kids come out of. And at 14 months old, our little girl had a lot of trauma. She, we picked her up in a, a department store parking lot um, from a CPS worker, police officer. Um, they met us there, and we had one brown paper sack and said these are her belongings. There was a little blanket and a little teddy bear. That's all we, they found. Um, I won't go into the details of what her trauma was, but I will tell you what happened next. We get home, and um, she's uh, trying to take it all in. This is her new home for now. And we were fostering and hoping to adopt. She comes to our house, and she clinged to Leslie, but then every time she would look at me, she would cry. And I know um, I'm hard to look at, but she cried. <laughs> and she cried a lot. And I told Leslie, I, I, I don't know how to work with her. She wants nothing to do with me. I would walk in the room. She would turn, and she would go to a corner in a fetal position and start to cry. Obviously, there was some kind of trouble there with daddy. So six to nine months go by, and I play it cool. It wasn't like slick uh, psychology. It was just Ryan trying to do life. I just play cool, and all of a sudden, she comes to me. I don't ever press her. She comes to me, and I love her, and I care for her, and I pray for her, and I'm there for her. And one day, she just began to change. And then I remember walking outside, and my neighbor said to me, hey, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, what? He goes, your daughter, the one you, you adopted recently, when she first was in our neighborhood, I noticed like her, her, everything about her countenance was like different. What did you guys do? And I said so quickly, without even thinking, I said, we loved her. That's all we did. We loved her. And I want to tell you something. Uh, she had to come to a place of trust, Maya. She had to come to a place to trust that her daddy would take care of her. And as a believer, you've got to come to a place and trust that your heavenly father is worth trusting. So it doesn't matter what kind of biological storyline you've got. You've got a heavenly father who cares for you tremendously. You've got a heavenly father that cares for you like his little kid. And he's always going to be there for you. Even when you screw up, even when you are undeserving, you need to know that you were adopted into that family. And there was a high price paid for you. you his son was crucified on a cross so that you could receive the adoption into God's family. And when you experience that and you trust your heavenly father a little more and a little more and a little more, then here's what happens. You'll begin to change. And here's the joy about the Christian life is that as you learn to trust God just a little bit more, you'll change a little bit more. I can think of many men that have come to faith in Christ or a deeper level of their faith in Christ in their 40s and their 50s. And by their 60s and 70s, people will say, that person's just different. Well, why are they different? Because they've learned to trust God. That's why. They've experienced the love of the Father. So, trusting always brings transformation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I do pray that we would receive it and believe it. Thank you that you are a good father, that you've adopted us in through our faith in you, Jesus Christ. 
And uh, Father, today we pray that we would learn more and more that in this time as such as this, that we can place our faith and trust in you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.